This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the web at goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. You know, Tane, you're in a jury trial. Someone looks at you and they say the dreaded word, Batson. Oh, man, I hate when that happens. Now, most of us understand Batson is an allegation of racial bias and jury selection. But the thing that I sort of struggled with when I mean I knew that from having been a prosecutor and defended some cases but I I didn't really know okay I know what it is now what how do you go through the analysis and if you find a violation what do you do with it yeah and the one thing about that Wade uh, that hopefully will take some of the fear and mystery out of it is at least with respect to Batson there's been a fairly detailed set of steps that you're supposed to go through they're not easy but they're they're well-defined steps that you go through in making a Batson analysis as the judge and so hopefully today's episode will answer some of those questions how to do it what to do if you find a violation and for those who haven't experienced it hopefully give you a good uh, exposure to it for those of us who have experienced it a little bit, maybe a refresher in some of the more recent cases. Remember, and tell them about where they can find our outlines. That's right. Remember, we always post our written outlines for each of these podcasts on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. And please go to that site. And uh, if you have any comments or any questions, please don't hesitate to to email us uh, at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Pop quiz, Tane. I'm sweating. If someone is alleging racial bias and jury selection in a criminal case, yes. what do you call it? Bats in motion. Okay. What if it's in a, what if it's the state making the allegation as opposed to the defendant? That's the old reverse Batson. And that, but what's the case name that people refer to that as? The McCollum case, Wade? Look at you. It's almost like you have notes in front of me. Almost. If it's a civil case what do people call it that's the edmondson motion is that right wade that's it all right and of course all those sites are on our website and all of those are u.s supreme court cases that have said that racial bias in jury selection is illegal it's illegal if the state does it it's illegal if the defendant does it and it's illegal if either party in a civil case does it you know all of these cases staying in all in all candor and all seriousness they have they have originated from a place that said racial bias is illegal from the perspective of the juror and from the parties. Right. And the cases have pointed out that jurors actually have a, a right to serve in the same way that uh, the the defense and the state have a right to have unbiased jurors. Now, let me ask you this. Have you had a, and we, we always call them bats and challenges, even people don't usually use the Edmondson or McCollum uh, reference. 
have you had any directed at gender while you've been on the bench? Um, no, I don't think I've ever had a gender-based uh, challenge uh, since I've been on the bench in 12 years, and I don't even ever remember one during private practice either in all those jury trials. You know, that, that whole body of law came a little bit later, but the one thing that I do see from time to time that has not been recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court and therefore not by Georgia is a, we'll call it a Batson challenge, based upon national origin. Yeah, that's right, Wade. I mean, we get confused sometimes, and it is confusing when you're going through. I mean, specifically, the Batson challenge um, has been utilized by the courts and recognized by the courts um, only for race and gender. And so let me ask you this, Wade. I mean, practically speaking, as the judge in the case, how do you go about making the kinds of notations that will allow you to be able to figure out if there is a Batson challenge, whether it's a legitimate challenge. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but 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 just tell me as a judge, what do you do when the jury's seated and they're starting to introduce themselves or, or however you do it? Um, what do you do? You know, it's really interesting you say that. We, you and I have had this conversation before, and I guess it was just drilled into me when Batson was a newer animal back when I was a prosecutor. But next to every juror number, say there's 42 in my panel, there is a designation, and, and it could be a W slash M, W slash F, B slash M, B slash F, white male, black male, and I will be candid with you. There are times that I cannot tell the race of a person, especially if I'm across the room and I can't really see very well and that they are not some people you can see very well and you don't know what if they are a single race whether they because a lot of people are mixed race and so you would a lot of times I would just simply put a question mark and then hopefully gender if I know if I can tell gender do you do something similar well you know it's funny Wade for a long time I made no notes about that whatsoever and my thought process about that was um that it wasn't really the, the trial court's responsibility. Since we're not making out the prima facie case, we simply have to analyze the prima facie case for the parties. And we'll get more into that in just a minute. Um, but I didn't make notes at all um, about that. And, and quite frankly, because it was difficult for me to figure out uh, sometimes you know, what to put or how to characterize um, certain people in, t in terms of race, um, and I didn't want to make some sort of unfair judgment on that, so I didn't. More recently, um, uh, really just in the past year, um, I've started trying to make some notes similar to what you were just talking about. And really, it's just for my use. It's not supposed to be any finding or anything. It's right. just something that I can – and, and it keeps me engaged in jury selection, honestly. Now, folks, throughout our episode today, we're going to refer to race being the primary issue that is in question, but all of these rules are equally applicable if the issue is gender. So just because we say race, don't think we didn't, we forgot about the gender issue. It is absolutely valid. It is absolutely real. And the test is exactly the same. That's right. Well, let's talk about this, Wade. When is the appropriate time or the proper time in the course of a trial for someone to make one of these objections? And and tell me a little bit about how you, uh, whether you ask people for that objection and, and if so, how you do that. And I'll tell a little bit about how I do that as well. Well, you have to do it in a jury trial and you're going to start learning more and more things about things that Wade and Tane don't agree on. And this is going to take us there in just a moment. But the case law is real clear that it, it and a Batson challenge has to be raised 
at a time where the judge can do something about it. Yeah, and that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> and so in a in a jury trial, excuse me, it's before the jury's sworn. In a civil trial, and this is one of the places Tane and I disagree, in a civil trial, the jury's not sworn. And so, and Tane would say that they are, correct? In my trial, they are. But in my in my copy of the OCGA, they're not. Right. And so, <laughs> so when would you do it? Well, it has to be clearly before the first uh, witness is sworn. And so... As a practice point, and in, in, in something that I do in my pretrial run up to the hearing, jury's in the hallway. We haven't brought them in yet. We may have a, we may put the offer. I'm talking, thinking about a criminal case right here. We may put the offer on the on the table. Make sure everybody knew what it was. Determine if there's some pretrial issue that just can't wait until after jury selection. I tell them how many alternates we're going to have in a particular case. And then I say to them something to the effect of the following. Lawyers, at the conclusion of jury selection, and when the clerk indicates we have a jury selected, I am going to ask you if there is any objection to the manner in which the jury was selected. If you say no, that's a waiver of any further bats and number column challenges. And I get them to acknowledge that on the record. Do you do something similar? I do. I do something similar. And when we're doing the preliminaries, like you said, with the case, um, I tell them and I'm walking them through some of the peculiar ways that I do things or things that may be different from others. Um, I tell them once the jury is over, here's the question you'll be asked. And I have it in my notes uh, that I use for my trial outline. And, I, and it's the question is something like, is there any issue with respect to jury selection that needs to be raised? And sometimes I'll even say, or any Batson challenge. Um, and that's your cue, lawyers, to uh, let me know if there is, because after that, I plan to swear the jurors that there hasn't been an objection and it will be waived. You know, I hope this goes without saying, but if there is a Batson challenge, you don't do any of that discussion in the presence of the jury. Absolutely. So that is the way that the jury can remain in the room and they can tell me, do we need to recess the jury because we have a potential issue? And if they say no, we move on. Now, I'll tell you, there's some cases out here that, that actually, that, and you'll see them in our uh, outline if you check it out on goodjudgepod.com, but it, in that outline it says the window is actually bigger than what you and I are describing. Yes, but as the other cases have said, logic dictates that it must be made at a time when the judge can still do something about it. And, and in terms of doing something about it, I mean, logically speaking, at some point in time, you're excusing the people who haven't been selected for the jury. Exactly. You're telling them they can go home or go back downstairs to be put back in the jury pool or whatever. And there's not a case that I'm aware of that says that's the point at which uh, the Batson challenge is waived, but logic dictates that if you don't have any more jurors in the room to reseat and no one's made a Batson challenge before you excuse them, then I think you might be on solid ground with respect to that. So, so let me ask something, or I'm sorry. Did you no, I, I was going to, I was going to say as a practice point, I usually do not swear the jury, do not administer the, the, the trial oath until such time as maybe we finish lunch, some logical break in the proceedings. I do that because, as we know, jeopardy attaches when the jury is sworn. And if you swear the jury and then, I don't know, a witness has a car wreck or something that's coming, a crime lab scientist, you know, God forbid, somebody who you, you don't have in hand 
has a wreck or something, then if they're not ready to go or, or God forbid, they're seriously injured, jeopardy has attached. And right. now you're going to have to declare a mistrial out of manifest necessity. If you didn't swear the jury, jeopardy hasn't attached, although the defendant has a right to the jury they selected. You can get through some of that. So some of these cases, and the more recent cases are not as um, blatantly obvious, I guess, as, as, we, as you and I might believe they ought to be, but they say any time before the jury is sworn, a Batson challenge can be made. Right, right. Well, let's back up a little bit, Wade, because I, I think this is something that, that is really important, especially for the judge practitioners, but also for lawyers who would be out there and might be in the process, might make a challenge or, or might have a challenge made against their um, jury strikes. And that's this. This is something you don't need to rush through. Um, I think as judges, and certainly I, I have been guilty of this, a Batson challenge happens, and all of a sudden you think, oh my gosh, I've got 48 jurors <laughs> out here, mm -hmm. and we're going to have, they think that the process is almost over because we've told them that it's almost over, and now we're stopping, we're sending them out of the courtroom, we're doing something they, you know, they don't know what we're doing, um, and I'll just encourage you that that's just not the end of the world. <laughs> you need to go ahead and, and take the time to make this process right because um, it's an important uh, challenge. Uh, the, the, the basis for it is a very important constitutional issue. And as the judge, you need to take the time and do it, do it correctly and follow, follow the rules. You know, over and over again, it, you and I both know how in the day-to-day -day practice of being a judge, that you get in a hurry on this and you get in a hurry on that. And you knew good and well, you needed to make that other sentence. You needed to make that other observation, but you got in a hurry because you were, you're always governed by the, the grind of the case management and the numbers of the cases, you know, how many cases you resolve today, et cetera. And you rush through things like this all the time. So, well, and I feel, I feel a real pressure when I have a jury not to waste their time, or at least not to make them feel like we're wasting their time. And so, you know, I, again, I think we just need to be really cognizant that we need to not pressure ourselves in a situation about something that's this important. Now, Tane, I, in a recent motion for new trial I had, I had the state come in and suggest that because the Batson, the failure to, to grant the, Brat, the Batson challenge made by the defendant during the trial was one of the bases for a motion for new trial. The state argued in their brief and in also in argument that because of this particular case that is in our outline, the 1991 case of Shaw versus the state, 2001 Georgia Appeals 438, this is a line from that decision. Colloquies between court and counsel and argument of counsel, though included in the record, are not competent evidence of the facts observed therein and do not suffice to make a proper record of facts required to establish a prima facie case of discrimination. Tane, I'll ask this rhetorical question. Hopefully you can answer it and, 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 and teach me up, as they say. Where else would you put it? How else would you <laughs> perfect that record? I, I agree, Wade. I, I guess what this is saying, although I don't really know, is that at the conclusion of those colloquies between the court and counsel, we as a judge need to sum it all up and say, I find that there were this many 
you know, people of a certain gender or this many people of a certain race in the panel uh, and, you know, whatever their prima facie case is that they're about to make out or trying to make out that we would have to somehow as the judge sum that up. I don't really know because colloquies are all we have at that point. There aren't witnesses sitting on the stand giving evidence. I mean, who else? Let's assume for a minute that we just decided the colloquy was insufficient, as this case suggests. Where else? What other data would you do? Would you put the jurors on the stand and ask them what their race and gender is? I mean, seriously, and I'm not being funny. I'm not sure what they had in mind as to where that data exists. My jury... Unless there's something I don't know, the people who establish our jury panels, I don't know that they know the racial makeup of the people that are on there. I don't know that they do either with respect to individual jurors. I think they're keeping data about that globally, but I don't think they know with respect to an individual jury panel. So I agree with you, Wade. I I don't know exactly what that means, but it is something to be aware of, and it is something to um, at least be sure you're being clear on the record Um, what you as the judge are concluding with respect to the things that are raised. So let me, let's get, let's get into the nuts and bolts. Let's get out of the thousand foot and let's get into the weeds here. Why don't you tell the people the, about the three-step process that you have to use every time there is a Batson or McCollum or Edmondson challenge made? Sure. Um, Okay. So someone makes, uh, or someone says, yes, judge, there's an issue we need to discuss with respect to this, uh, this jury selection process. Um, Don't forget that during that process, initially, at least in the very first step, the burden is on the person making the challenge um, to prove what's called a prima facie case of discrimination. Now, it's not that they have to go through and and do a statistical analysis or anything like that, but they at least have to raise a genuine issue um, with respect to discrimination. So the the first phase is um, that they have to make a prima facie showing of racial discrimination. And there are a lot of cases out there about what what defines that or how you might go about showing that. But you as the judge simply have to be convinced that they have at least made out some sort of colorable claim, creditable claim, uh, that um, there is potentially racial discrimination in the exercise of the other side's strikes. That's what we're talking about in the the way that they have exercised their strikes. And what they normally do in those cases is they'll say something like, um, well, Judge, um, they've struck every single one of the African-American jurors uh, um, who... Or, or at the beginning of this panel. They know. used all their strikes against a particular racial group. Exactly, exactly. Now, okay, so the appellate courts refer to these as steps, and so let's keep them as steps. You will hear proponent of the strike and opponent of the strike. Proponent of the strike is a person who thinks it was a legit strike. The opponent of the strike who thinks it's an illegit strike. Right. So rather than keep saying the party who's objecting to the strike, we'll just call them proponents and opponents as much as we can. So the first step, Tane, is that they must make the prima facie showing in a way, as you said, at least gives the judge a sense that it's a colorable claim. What's the second step? The burden then shifts to the person who has made the strike to give a race-neutral reason for the strike. And understand, um, as you're doing this, you may be talking about strikes used against 
multiple jurors, or you may actually only be talking about a strike made with respect to a per- one particular juror. I mean, it doesn't have to be every strike they used was was um, made in a discriminatory fashion. That's frequently the way you see it, but that doesn't have to be the way you see it. But the second phase is the person who made the strike is required to give a race-neutral reason for making the strike. And it can be as simple as, um, Judge, that person said that they have a brother who's uh, already in prison for murder and, um, you know, this is a murder case and I didn't feel comfortable with that circumstance. Now, you are required to use the totality of the circumstances in step two. You should consider everything, not just what they say, but what they did and what you saw and what you heard and people's attitude and and nonverbal communication. All of those things are valid, but they need to be made a part of the record. So that's step two. What's step three? So in the third step, the court has to make a determination as to whether or not the race-neutral reason given by the proponent of the strike is a pretextual reason or whether it is a legitimate reason. In other words, essentially, do you believe that? And one of the ways that you sort those things out and the arguments that will be given is, for example, with the one that the example I gave a moment ago, well, uh, they I struck this person because his brother was in prison for murder. Well, the other side may come back and say, well, judge, um, that may be the case, but there was also a, a, a white juror whose brother was also in prison for murder or for ag assault or for something like that. Um, and that indicates to me that that's a pretextual reason and not uh, a, a legitimate reason. So let's go a little bit deeper on step one, making that prima facie case. Um, most lawyers rely upon the, the numbers. Judge, there were 50% of the Venari panel were uh, African-American and only 25% of the jury is African-American. There are people who say the, the state used six of their, of their nine strikes against people who are African-American. There are different ways to do it. As, as the courts have said, the, the first step is not particularly onerous. It requires only evidence sufficient for the trial judge to draw an inference of discrimination. It's not intended to be an incredibly high bar. It doesn't have a number where 75% of the strikes being used against one racial group is fine, but 83% is is illegal. It's not that much of a bright line. And and I'll be honest with you, Wade. Um, if someone articulates a reason that there may be um, a problem with respect to the way that the strikes were utilized, I, I normally let it go to the second step. And sometimes I will even say as the judge, I'm not sure whether you've made a prima facie showing of discrimination or not. However, I'm going to ask the other side to give its um, race-neutral reason or gender-neutral reason for making the strike. Because yeah. you're, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to hear the reason, even if you're not sure that they've made out a prima facie case at the outset. And I'll just be honest with you. I don't know that there's ever been a Batson challenge in my case that I have not gone to step two. Yeah, there, it, it would be very rare. You see a lot of the appellate cases that say, well, the, the trial court didn't make a determination, but went ahead to step two anyway. And then they will decide ultimately, did they feel that there was a, a case for racial discrimination on the appellate level? So that's step one. And, and an important thing on step one, Wade, what do you as the judge say at the end of step one? What kind of what kind of ruling do you make? Well, usually, if if I have found that there has been a prima facie case made, I will 
note that that the the case law has said, well, that's not a very difficult burden. It's a low hurdle, as one might say, but that it's been met. So let's move on to step two. And in this case, let's say it's a pure Batson. We'd look to the prosecutor and say, Mr. District Attorney, Ms. Ms. District Attorney, need you to explain your strikes under step two of a Batson analysis. And so let's go on to step two, because that's what I would do. Would you do something similar? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what what you're talking about, again, remember, maybe a general use of all strikes, or we may just be talking about a strike with respect to a particular juror. And so I think in, in this step in particular, you have to get down to the individual juror level. So they're they're required to give us uh, reasons for each for each of those juror strikes. Absolutely. So you talked earlier about not rushing, and I think it's going to be important in step two because in step two, you are supposed to let the person who made the strikes explain the strikes. Yes. That is all. You should not at this point make a finding, well, well that's pretextual, or what about the white similarly situated juror? Don't, don't do that here. And the case law is real clear that when the judge conflates, I think is the word they use, conflates step two and step three, they reverse it on a pretty regular basis. Let the person who made the strikes explain the strikes. And as the cases say, how they explain it and how rapidly they explain it and whether they look like they're making stuff up is a part of the analysis that the judge uses to determine whether that strike is pretextual or not. And I'll, t- I'll give you a perfect example of how step two might end the process and, and you might make a determination that there is a Batson a re- or legitimate Batson challenge. I had a situation in a case recently where when the legitimate, uh, I'm sorry, when the non-discriminatory reason was given, the prosecutor simply had the wrong juror, the, the notes written wrong for that particular juror. They started talking about, well, his, you know, his brother was the one in prison and, and everybody agreed except that prosecutor. No, our notes show that that was the next juror, juror number 27. And, and so the, the prosecutor actually conceded, oh, I think you're right. I don't have a note on that juror. And we, we reseated that juror. But I'm getting ahead as to what we do then. So the race-neutral reason doesn't even need to make sense. It doesn't have to be plausible. It doesn't have to even be good practice. It just has to be something other than based upon race. Now, the older cases said it had to be case-related. All of that has been overturned. And in the Supreme Court of the United States, Supreme Court of Georgia, have all agreed it no longer has to be, quote-unquote, case-related, but it has to be something other than race-based. And so ultimately, your ability to observe the demeanor of the lawyer, of the juror, whether it seemed to be earnest or whether they seem to be sending up a kite and see if it'll fly, that is the, that's one of the important functions of the judge. Now, if you don't tell the appellate courts that you notice the, the demeanor of, say, the juror or the, the prosecutor or whoever it is, they and don't did, know. It, they have no idea what you saw. Right. So that is step two. Let step two play itself completely out before you move to step three. Tell the people about step three a little bit. Sure. So step three is where uh, 
you make the determination and you allow, again, both sides. To, this is important, too. With respect to each of these three steps, as you move from one to two to three, let both sides argue and even let them respond if you want to. And, you know, because, again, it's not a process you're supposed to rush. But in step three, the court is making a determination as to whether the race neutral reason that was given by the proponent is pretextual or whether it is um a legitimate reason, or at least one that's based in law. So a quote from some cases say that the explanations can be implausible. They can be fantastic. They can be non-persuasive. They just have to not be based on race. Now, you may recall, and I don't remember the name of the case, it's cited in our, in our materials, the appellate courts have said that when your reason is a implausible or fantastic reason, but it is also filled with implicit racial bias. There was a juror who was struck during a jury trial. Is it stricken or struck? I say struck. Okay. Somebody who was struck during a jury trial, who's when challenged, the prosecutor's stated reason was he had gold teeth. And the appellate court said that is such a racial stereotype that that made that explanation pretextual. They specifically said if it had been long hair, piercings, tattoos, that is not necessarily race-based. But the gold teeth, the appellate court said, is so inherently stereotypical, I don't Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. representative of one particular racial group as to make the stated reason pretextual. I know sometimes you and I have these conversations on the phone and over the internet and where we go, God, did you see this case? What do you think about this? This seems crazy. No, it doesn't seem crazy because our friends on the appellate courts are never crazy. Never. But it, 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 makes, it, it makes it hard to, to, to understand and to utilize sometimes when we hit certain decisions. Right. This is one of those that I say, why is it stereotypically racial for only African Americans to have gold teeth? When I've seen people of other races have gold teeth. I mean, do you have you ever had anything like that where you knew the stated reason may have been, you know, hold your nose plausible, but you just didn't believe it? Well, I I hear people say things, I used to hear it in civil cases a lot, where people would say things like, Well, Judge, I struck that juror because she's a teacher and I just don't like to have teachers on my jury. Okay, well that seems ridiculous, but it's race neutral. And, you know, it may exhibit a particular prejudice of that lawyer for teachers being on their juror, but it's not Batson. Uh, it's not ant- contrary to Batson. Now, the only that is where but, they didn't strike the white teachers. Exactly. Or, or the white preachers or the white veterans. Or if the only teacher you had on the jury was of a particular race and they also struck all the other people of that particular race and you just don't think that's the real reason that they struck that juror, you're allowed to say that as the judge and you're allowed to move on to the next level of what we do in a Batson challenge if it's if it's deemed to be a legitimate challenge. You know, none of the cases have said this is a legitimate issue, but I do have a question for you just as, a, as an inquiry, Tane. Do you care about the race of the victim or the defendant in a civil case of the party versus the party? Do you, d- does, that, does that bring your attention, I guess, more to Batson? Does that, does that make you think, hmm, this might really be race-based 
Whereas if you don't know the race of the victim or the witness or somebody who's not in the room, right? do you care about the race of the players? It doesn't matter in the sense of, of the Batson analysis, except I think that it can weigh into whether you think it can be a factor for you to consider in whether you think that one party or another is exercising their strikes um, impermissibly. Um, so I think that's something that may need to be made a part of your analysis when you're making Because, again, totality of the circumstances is our, is our standard here. And so I think that may need to be something that you put on the record if it's something that you think is relevant to the analysis you're doing. So let's give the people a few examples as we close of case of situations that have been determined to be race neutral and maybe some who've been determined to not be race neutral. So where a potential juror is just seemed disinterested in the process or the case, that disinterested disinterest, excuse me, is a race neutral explanation for a peremptory strike, at least according to some of the cases. Of course, a record has to be made of that. Right. A juror's prior criminal history uh, has been found to be race neutral. Where a juror has previously served on a jury that returned a not guilty verdict. That has been determined to be race neutral. Lack of employment by a juror. And then the arrest of a juror, juror's family, even though it wasn't a conviction, which would have disqualified them, if, if it, that history is out there, that's been found to be race neutral. Yeah, also such things as body language and facial expressions and other nonverbal displays of demeanor have been found to be race neutral. But again, that's something where all of that would have to be put onto the record and articulated. Where a juror has appeared to be mentally challenged, that has, appeared, that has been determined to be race neutral. Where the proponent stated that a juror had gold teeth, that characteristic, as the court said, is specific to a racial group or stereotypical belief that is imputed to a particular race. And so that was actually a reason that was violated, that violated Batson. Now, where a proponent gives multiple reasons for a strike, some of which are clearly race neutral, some of which are clearly not race neutral, the courts have said you should... Oh, if there is any race-based motivation, that needs to be found to be a violation of Batson or McCollum and to result in that particular strike being not allowed. Tane, if you don't mind, now what? You have found a Batson violation. Now what? What do you typically do? That's the really tough one because the remedy usually is that you – in some way or another, reseat some jurors. <laughs> and so the determination of how to best do that is usually left up to the court as long as it's something that seems to be fair and appropriate. I will tell you what I usually do is that I will now increase the number of alternates that I had planned to use, and I will seat that particular jury, where juror, excuse me, where they would have fit in the normal flow. Yes. And the 12th juror now becomes the first alternate. So yeah. basically move everybody else behind them down one. Yeah, um, I've done that. I've also um, gone back and let's say it was uh, juror uh, strike number seven that was um, found to be a race-based uh, strike. I will seat that juror and tell the parties that juror will now be the next juror who's on the jury. And then you can also allow them to go back and 
re-strike the jury from that point going forward. So in other words, just starting after juror number seven, uh, you just go forward and exercise the remainder of your strikes. And normally, um, and I think this is supported by the case law also, um, whatever strike was used on that juror essentially is the penalty strike. That person doesn't get that strike back, even though you're going back and restriking the rest of the jury. And of course, Batson itself allowed you to just throw out the whole panel and start again. Yes, absolutely. So as we conclude, let's, let's do the three-step analysis. The three-step analysis is, is number one. The party complaining must make a prima facie case of racial discrimination. Of course, it could be gender discrimination, but they need to articulate it. Two, the burden of production of evidence, or colloquially, then shifts to the proponent of the strike, the person who made the strike, to provide a race-neutral reason for the strike, considering the totality of the circumstances. And only then, Tane, in step three, does the trial court decide whether the opponent of of the strike has proven discriminatory intent. That's right. So be sure and take your time, folks, when you're doing this analysis, as we've said, to let the process play out, particularly as Wade was saying in step two, let them give their reasons and, uh, and allow them as much time as they need to do that before you make a determination, because the standard that you're using is totality of the circumstances. Only in step three do you make that determination. You consider the totality of the circumstances and whether the jurors similarly situated were treated the same way. That is pretty informative on, on as, as a regular rule. That's right. Uh, the other thing you should be sure and do is make some clear findings on the records uh, so that the record is clear if it's ever challenged in the appellate courts as to why you made the determination that you did and what the remedy is that you're giving. Make sure you show that you know and you're following the three-step process. Keep that handy during jury selection. It's in our trial outline, and we've had that recent series on how to try a case from beginning to end. It's in there. But make sure you let everybody know you know what you're talking about. And if you're making credibility determinations, make a record of what you saw, what you thought, how you felt, because that's going to be important. As we said earlier, the appellate court can't see in the courtroom. That's right. And take good notes. Take good notes. Take good notes. And and when you find a violation, consider asking the parties what they think you ought to do about it. If everybody gives you a remedy that is not outrageous, now we have consent. Carry on. (laughs) And the last thing to remind you, uh, again, all of this process goes on outside the presence of the jury. Send them out of the room and do the process. Folks, thanks for listening. And remember that we post these outlines on our website, goodjudgepod.com. We also would really appreciate it if you would rate and review that podcast and tell us how we're doing. You know, we've gotten a lot of nice emails from people that have said they've enjoyed the podcast. And I think we've gotten, what, how many? Four reviews? Now, they're all five stars, but four reviews I think we were talking about the other day? I think so. I think one was a thumbs up, one was good job, you know, and that's fine. That's great. But people don't know what we're doing. And, and if you found us and you found this valuable, let somebody know. We'd appreciate it. All right. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Tane Kell. And I'm Wade Padgett. Thanks for listening in to the Good Judgment Podcast. Like what you're hearing? Let us know. Your ratings and reviews go a long way for us, and we appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. 
And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. (laughs) But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, and thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience, and the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.